0: In the construction business and tired of dealing with the indifference of big corporate suppliers, Quality Supply and Tool on South Harding Street understands. For over 25 years, owner Kevin Ane has had a different approach.
1: We at Quality Supply and Tool take pride in being a locally owned family business, committed to service. And every customer's needs are different, and we truly believe in shaping our business to our customers' needs. That's what separates us from the competition.
0: That's Quality Supply and Tool with additional locations in Bloomington, Jeffersonville, and Lafayette to serve Hoosiers better. Partner with Quality Supply and Tool and think outside the box, store.
2: Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag.
3: Absolutely incredible. Danny
2: Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth.
0: Beyond the Bricks, with Jay Query and Mike Thompson, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool, Think Outside the Box, Store, on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hey, good evening to you. Happy Thursday. My name is Jay Query. The reality is that open to the show should say you are listening to Beyond the Bricks with Mike Thompson and by happenstance, Jake Query, because Mike is truly the star of the show, because this show, as we talk about each and every night, for those of you that are just joining us, where have you been, or we're driving around town and we're just listening to Kevin and so you're new to this program, we play a lot of audio and allow the stars of yesteryear to maintain as stars in the lore of the Indianapolis 500 based on keeping alive their legacies From interviews that were done with drivers, from commercials that were done with drivers, from songs about the 500, and all kinds of anecdotes of the Indy 500. And the star of that is the other person that you hear on this program, and that is Mike Thompson, because he works tirelessly to put together and pull audio from all of those things of which I mentioned, and he joins us tonight. Mike, it's going to be a fun one tonight, because in that effort that you have put together in putting together tonight's show... We get a chance to illuminate some of those that people probably know the name but maybe don't know as much about their career. And that's where we come into play. Good evening to you.
4: Good evening and thank you for those nice plaudits and platitudes. I, I appreciate that. I, look, it is it is a lot of work to be candid with you putting the show together, but I love doing it. And and I really appreciate all the people who reach out uh, both through uh, Twitter and and other other websites, uh, even on Reddit. I've seen some things on Reddit sometimes, and I really do appreciate how many people reach out and say they enjoy the show and really like what we do. And and it it is a labor of love to find all these different clips, but uh, it really is worth it in the end.
0: You know, when you look, Mike, at the different names, I, I have always said this, and I think you and I have had this conversation before. Presidents are another area where I have a fascination. I think you and I have talked about presidents before off air. But one of the things that to me has always been interesting most Americans, all Americans, you know, they know George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln. But then there are those other presidents. There are those presidents that I always call the fat bearded guy era. It's just a bunch of guys that look alike. They're all fat and they all have big beards. And. You know, the Rutherford B. Hayes and the Chester A. Arthurs and, you know. James Garfield, they're all the same guy. Yeah, and half of them are from your home state of Ohio. That's Um, correct. Benjamin Harrison from here, well, from Ohio and Indiana for that matter. But you do get those presidents that kind of fall into the obscure category, and then they become known because, ironically enough, they're known as being the most obscure. But Chester A. Arthur, for example, there are those Indy 500 winners that are Chester A. Arthur. Sure, you have your Ray Haroon, and you have your you know, Louis Meyer, and you have your A.J. Foyt. But you've got to have those names as well that are not talked about as much. And that's why I love what you have decided to do tonight in featuring one of those. And let's begin with this one. Floyd Davis, who is a name that I think most people know because they see it. But they probably don't know more about the man behind the name itself. But a pretty fun story that we're going to talk about tonight.
4: Well, yeah, and, and what's interesting is Floyd Davis, you know, he's one of two drivers who won the 500 but never even led a lap. And, and that may surprise some people, but he, he, he didn't lead a lap in the race that he, he won. He's on the Borg BorgWarner Trophy with, with Maury Rose as a co-winner, uh, but he never led a lap. And uh, there's some interesting circumstances. And I'm going to step on my soapbox for a second. I've always thought that rule is a little goofy because you have Floyd Davis, who was running 12th at the time he got pulled in 1941. And Maury Rose takes over the car, charges to the front, ends up winning the race. And Floyd Davis is a a co-winner, right? But in 1911, Ray Haroon was leading, got out of the car. Cyrus Spachki got in the car. Patchkey kept the car in first place, turned the car back over to Haroon. So he led the race in the winning car. But Cyrus Patchkey is not a co-winner. So I just think that the, the rules are a little are a little goofy at, at times. So that's my little soapbox for tonight. So I'm, I'm, I'm the president of the Cyrus Patchkey Society. So
0: the question would be this. And I don't know the answer, Mike. I'm embarrassed to say. What is the discrepancy or the difference in why they are scored in two different fashions
4: the rule was at the time uh to if to be a co-winner if one driver started the race and another driver finished the race they were deemed co-winners if one driver started the race another guy got out of you know, and, and got in the car, and then this first driver came back and finished the race, there were not co-winners. So hopefully I explained that right. Yeah. But here's what's, here's what's weird about that. So let's say in 1911, Ray Haroon starts the race, drives the first 10 laps, gets out of the car, he's in first, and then Patchkey gets in, drives the next 180 laps, leads all the laps, gets back out, turns the car back over to Haroon. Haroon just finishes the last 10 laps and wins. Haroon would be a winner, and Cyrus Paschke would not be a winner under those circumstances because that was the rule. The rule was if one driver started the race and finished the race, he was the only winner, whereas in the rule is, again, in 1941, and also the the situation that happened with L.L. Corum and and Joe Boyer, if one driver started and a different driver finished, that's how you got co-winners.
0: And so as a result of that, Floyd Davis, who, by the way, was no stranger to the – and, Mike, I think we should point this out to people who may not be as familiar with the history of the Indianapolis 500. But the relief driver program, you got to keep in mind, we're not talking about today's Indianapolis 500 that's running, you know, in the course of a couple of hours. The conditions were such – not only the weather conditions, obviously are always – you know, can be warm in May – But the speeds in which they're running, I mean, in the year in which you had Floyd Davis as a co-winner, you know, the, the race itself was taking nearly four and a half hours, but at the same time, they're also driving on the brick, which one of the things that I have always found interesting, Mike, and I don't know that I ever had this epiphany until I was talking to someone, and it may have been you, pointed out, there are so many pictures, Jimmy Bryan is the most famous, as you and I both know, Mike cigar smoker of the drivers that have won a race at the 8500. But you see a lot of pictures of drivers that have a cigar in their mouth back in the you know the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. and you think to yourself, gosh, everybody was smoking back then. Well I didn't I don't know why I didn't realize this, but it was later pointed out to me, and I don't mean all, but that there were a percentage of drivers that had the cigar in the mouth, basically as a mouth guard because you're driving over those bricks. And it's not the smooth surface that you get once they finally, 25 years from now, finish the north split of sixty-five seventy. I mean, you were talking about a very bumpy and inconsistent surface. So it was an extremely arduous and physical process for people to run for 500 miles.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Jimmy Bryan. I mean, Jimmy Bryan, one of the toughest drivers ever, was, I mean, literally beaten to a pulp by his car. The, the shocks failed on his car. And he was beaten to the point where, I mean, they had to help him out of the car and rush him to the, to the infield hospital. And he missed Milwaukee. And, uh, Bill Vukovich had to take over the car the next week because the, he was beaten up so badly by driving on the brick. So you're right. I mean, the, it's, it, it's a much different race than what we think of, you know, what we see today as far as, I mean, it's tough. It's physical. You, you know, I mean, you're out in the, the conditions calling the race, so you know what it's like, but, um, you know, especially on a hot day, like we, you know, saw like 20, 2012 sticks out to me as a really ex- extremely hot day. It was, but, um, you know, it's a lot different driving on those bricks for sure.
0: So let's get to talking about Floyd Davis, uh, the driver or the man himself. He was born in Illinois in 1909. So essentially the year that the Indianapolis 500 becomes a reality in terms of the vision of Carl Fisher, the purchase of the land and, and getting everything going up and underway towards building the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was the year that Floyd Davis was born. He, by the time he was driving along with Maury Rose, starting the race, driving the first 72 laps of that race in which he would be scored, much to the chagrin of Mike Thompson as a co-winner. He had driven in races before that, though, so he was not a stranger to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Started in 1937, he had started in the 24th position, had an accident that took him out and finished in the 15th position, but he did finish 190 laps. Then in 1939, comes back, starts 29th, finishes 27th, It was a shock that went out 43 laps into the race. 1940, now all of a sudden we're getting more into the relief drivers because in 1940, he started in the 33rd position but was relieved by not just one but two drivers. So you had kind of this rotation going on. And then 1941, as you talked about, Mike, he steps out of the car. Maury Rose gets into the car, completes the race for him, and they go from... Running outside of the top ten to winning the race, and Floyd Davis is scored as a winner. Now, the first audio we have here, Mike, I understand is from 1957. Correct?
4: That's correct. Now, Davis, after he retired, he actually did some broadcasting, and he he hosted a, a show with Charlie Brockman, a nightly show. Uh, it was actually kind of a competitor to uh, Sid's show. I mean, Sid Sid had a show called Speedway Gossip, and uh, they had a nightly show. Uh, him and Charlie Brockman did. So but because of the fact that Sid had different people from different stations on the radio network at the time, uh, in 1957, Floyd Davis was actually chosen to be one of the, the reporters on the Speedway radio network. So he only did it one year. and. And it's interesting because he was actually supposed to be on the broadcast again the next year. And they announced it in the paper a couple of days before the race saying that, you know, for un- because of unforeseen for- circumstances, he's not going to be on. It, and he was never on it again. But this is his uh, his introduction to the Speedway Radio Network in 1957.
0: And I can tell you the first thing that he learned when he was on the Speedway Radio Network. Uh, no relief for us, baby. We're on the mic all the time. I don't have to hand it over to anybody else. I kid, of course. Here is Floyd Davis from 1957.
1: Back in Gasoline Alley in the garage area where the listeners will be able to hear from drivers out of the race and meet some of the celebrities who mill about throughout the day. We've placed a newcomer to our broadcast, the winner of the 1941 Indianapolis 500-mile race, Floyd Davis. Is it
5: crowded back there, Floyd? We're all set back here, Sid. Everything's all right. We're located in the garage area, better known as Gasoline Alley, and now back to Sid Collins in the tower.
1: Back in the garage area now for a little bit of information about those cars out of the race. Standing by is Floyd Davis.
5: What's the story, Floyd? Well, Sid, uh, from the pit crew of uh, Eddie Russo, Elmer George, on the first slow lap, driving car 23, run into the rear of Eddie Russo in car 25. Bashed in the tail of the car and burst the gas tank. Russo at the present time is on the pit wall, probably looking for Reed. Now back to Sid Collins in the tower. Very fine, Floyd. Thank you very much, and keep up that
1: report just like that all day. That was wonderful. And of course, a very, very bad break for Eddie Russo here in the 500 right before the race began.
0: It was nice of Sid to both coach and encourage Floyd Davis on that call in 1957. Perhaps that's what allowed for, as Mike had mentioned, Floyd to get a little bit more involved in broadcasting. That includes an interview that he would do 18 years later with one of the guys who is a pillar of broadcasting and sportscasting in Indianapolis lord Chet Kopic, who had worked for many years here, a Chicago native. Chet Kopic became well aware of the Indianapolis 500 mile race and he interviewed. Floyd Davis in 1975.
5: I was uptown in a restaurant eating and I heard about the fire and naturally I hurried out here and I like never got in a speedway because of fire engines and what have you. I got back there and the fire was next door to my garage. So they had my car out and there was two cars burned up. They were Gulf oil specials. One of them was driven by qualified by uh, George Barringer and the other uh, hadn't qualified. (laughs) You had a team car. Yes, uh, Rosa had at uh, Maserati. And he dropped out early in the event. That's right. He had the pole, didn't he? He sat on the pole. Uh-huh. And why
6: uh, why was he uh, decided to relieve your car? Uh, that was never really clear to me, but uh,
5: uh, I'm sure you had never uh, required a relief driver in the past in your other three uh, races at Indianapolis. Is that true? Never had Ricardo and I didn't that day either. We had a little, uh, well, shall I say, uh, verbal disagreement uh, almost fisticuffs with the owner I did That's the car owner uh, a car, uh, Lou a Moore. car of the race yes Lou Moore and uh, of course uh, I knew if the uh, blew up but uh, they would call me in and uh, but you I, were you were in fact in a very competitive position well I had business. enough gas to go the entire race and had tires and uh, I would have taken the lead in about 15 laps well, obviously back in the uh, 40s you had to go through quite a bit of physical punishment to drive. Uh, these guys like Parsons today have got a breeze compared to what you used to have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I don't think you can compare uh, groups of drivers from year to year. I think uh, they're all the same, good, bad, and indifferent. And I believe that the bravest drivers uh, on the race was uh, way back in 1911, 12, and back in there, because they had they were just driving accidents, going someplace to happen. Wooden spoke wheel and it was a terrible go and they were driving in dirt, and they were driving on pavement. Now back when I was driving, it was a little bit rough too. We had holes out there when you put in the uh, Kentucky rock asphalt, it took eight inches deep to fill them. So we were airborne about 60% of the time. Also, they had an uh, inside retaining wall. Now, you, uh, because of the roughness of the track and our tire treads, well, one, one tire a day is equal to uh, all four of ours and a little more. And uh, because you bounced around so and were airborne, you couldn't tell within three feet where you were gonna be going through the turns. So uh, you had to be careful on that inside retaining wall or you would become a human uh, billiard ball. Well, you really did get jostled around and i never drove a race car where i was strapped in we had no belts or anything like that in fact the car won in the air came in through there and it kept you about that high off the seat oh and, you, know. you, you had a year was it 1937 it was really hot and yeah, was that the year they just sent a lot of drivers and writing oh, uh, yeah, mechanics a, to the hospital yes they had all kinds of wrecks that year they all went to the uh city hospital except me and i went to st vincent's what happened uh, to you that year well i wrecked at the end of the race the uh when i went out that morning we had no oil pressure and uh, well well, we had oil pressure and all of a sudden we didn't have any oil running out on the bottom so the line to the uh, oil pressure gauge was leaking and they run back and got soldered up a t and stuck that on there and uh, i didn't know whether i had oil pressure or not and i ran out of oil at the end of the race nine laps from the finish and I hit the wall on the backstretch, and I had a man in with me, D. Turan, yeah, who had incidentally paid me a hundred dollars to ride with. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find now that you've been inactive for a number of years that you still have an almost irresistible urge every February and March to get back out here to the speedway and be part of the atmosphere and part of the color of this event? Oh, this is a reunion to me. Uh, it's like a family reunion. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as going out there and driving, uh, I'm foolish, but. Not that foolish.
4: Now, my favorite part of that clip is the fact that, you know, they were running 12th at the time he was relieved by Maury Rose, uh, running several minutes behind the leaders, but he was going to take the lead in like 10 laps, you know. So he's, he's telling a little bit of an embellishment of the story there, but, uh, you know, great audio there for Floyd Davis.
0: I also enjoyed the background music of it, by the way, which kind of adds did you, did you, to the flavor of it all, right? Yeah, did you feel like you were at Farrell's there for a minute? Absolutely. Farrell's in Castleton Square for my sixth birthday. Uh, Floyd Davis, by the way, passed away. And it it is interesting how many drivers passed away around the race in later years. Obviously, those that were in the race. I don't mean it that way. But uh, the 31st of May of 1977 is when Floyd Davis passed away at the age of 68. We talked about the fact that Floyd Davis, of course, in driving and winning the race and working with Maury Rose, but that leads us to a fascinating story about Maury Rose that I'm sure most of you may know. Howdy Wilcox II of no relation to, I believe Mike, matter of fact I don't believe, but I know, but I want to reinforce Howdy Wilcox II was not of relation to the Howdy Wilcox who had won the race, correct? That is correct. But he went by the second as a differential between the two and was the later of the two And Howdy Wilcox II was a very popular driver and was well-liked by the paddock, well-liked by his competitors. And there was an issue that arose, though, Mike, when it was determined between the time in which Howdy Wilcox II had been entered into the race one year and when the race was about to begin, that there was a medical issue that was of concern for Howdy Wilcox II. And that concern was the fact that he essentially had failed the eye exam because of complications from diabetes. And so as a result of that, even though he had run and finished second, by the way, in the 1932 Indy 500 as a rookie, he suddenly was disqualified essentially for the 1933 Indianapolis 500. And Mike, the other drivers basically came to his defense and said, look, Howdy's a good guy. And and he, he ran the race. His vision isn't bad. It was bad the day it was tested. And suddenly a compromise was formed and Maury Rose was entered into the picture.
4: Well, the, the compromise only came after basically all the drivers went on strike and said, we're not going to run the race. And and Eddie Rickenbacker said, we're going to have a race if, if there's only one car and it's me driving. And, you know, he had retired at that point. He was the owner of the track. But he basically said, If we have one car on the race, you know, and it's just me, that's what we're going to do. And maybe next year there won't be a race. So that kind of strong arm tactic got the the drivers in line. And then there was a compromise, which was that Maury Rose would get in Howdy Wilcox II's car. And unfortunately, that was the end of Howdy Wilcox II's uh, career as a driver. But that was the the compromise after quite a bit of uh, tension between the, the two parties at that point.
0: If I'm not mistaken, and Donald and I have talked about this, I've asked several people for others, and I believe that Maury Rose, as a result, is the only driver in the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Mike, who did not have to undergo any sort of a rookie orientation test before getting in a car. And it was because of the very late circumstances in which he was placed in the car that he had that opportunity. uh, Every other driver, at some point between when they are declared to be running in the Indy 500 and then run it, have to go through some sort of a test or orientation. And Donald and I have talked about the fact that Maury Rose, I don't believe, had to. Of course, it turned out to be A-OK in the long run in terms of his career. Here is some audio. Mike, set up for us what we're going to hear from Maury Rose in 1958.
4: Well, Maury Rose actually did some work with the Speedway Radio Network as well and uh, had a great relationship with Sid. And this is uh, Maury Rose and Sid in, in 1958. And uh, Maury Rose was uh, was very, very good as a broadcaster.
1: Now from a rookie to a man who teaches rookies but himself is a real veteran, a three-time winner of this 500 Speed Classic, Mr. Maury Rose. Maury, it's good to have you back in the tower with us. Well, thank you, Sid. Back in 1941, 1947, and 1948, you really thrilled the crowd, and since 1933, as a matter of fact, you were out here in the same track, Maury, and you haven't changed a bit, incidentally. Well, young as
7: ever. Uh, that remains to be seen. But you know, this is one of those places where the old saying, "Youth will be served," you remember that? That's right. That's certainly true here. Uh, you have to have youth on your side, and uh, because it requires a tremendous coordination.
1: Maury, do you think a race driver should retire at a
7: certain age? I think so. I think if he hasn't learned to do something else and drive race car the time he gets, say, 42 to 45, I think he's failed.
1: Maury, you were known here as a strategist, a man who kind of laid back in the field anywhere from position 12 to 7 or 6, and then year after year would move on up and get the checkered flag three times and in very fine contention every other time. Do you think these days, with these fast-charging automobiles and these drivers whose theory seems to be that of getting in the front and staying as long as the car will hold together and a strategist like you could do well today
7: well uh, I don't know how I could do but if someone used good strategy I think uh, does well because take the fellow who won in here last year uh, he didn't charge all the us he set a new record that he was certainly a strategy driver he laid just back of the fellows who went all out saved his car a little and his rubber and he, he won So I think the strategy driver is, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, The chances are a fellow who gets out and runs from the word go, will run out of rubber, tires, and himself. I think it's a fellow who holds just a little back in reserve and is pacing himself only a little bit. I think there's the guy's going to win. Maura, you always started pretty close up to
1: the front, third or fourth or somewhere in there. Do you think it's a real disadvantage to be far back in the field
7: as some of these boys qualifying uh, today find themselves? Sid, uh, it is an advantage in that you can hit your regular pace right off the bat. Uh, but uh, actually, I started way in the back. Of course, didn't too many laps you get up in front. If a fellow wants to go, I don't think it makes any difference where he starts. Louis Meyer won the race here from the last position, and he didn't do it flashily. He just picked them off one at a time because I think the fellas who do the pipe driving, they forget a 500 mile race. I think it's, uh, again, the strategy driver who passes only when he knows he can get by safely. uh, He's a guy that... plans it and he picks it past his cars one at a time and the first thing you know he's there for example jim rathman last year he started i believe 32nd that's right which up. is almost last there's only one more car and lo and behold in 150 200 miles he's running second or leading the race well how did he do that he must have had some strategy or planning yet the fellows who went full tilt they just seem to drop by the wayside You raced here many years, and then the
1: last race you were in, your
7: car was upside down
1: in the back. You came here in front of us, right here, as we're looking down on the track in front of this tower. Then it was the old pagoda. You were quoted by a newspaper man as saying, some days you can't make a nickel, and you quit racing. Did you make up
7: your mind that minute, or had you made up
1: your mind before the race that day? He
7: said I thought about quitting because, actually, I have been working in automotive industry. Racing was sort of a sideline. to let out your uh, things that you couldn't let out any other way, and I enjoyed driving but then uh you get older and you, you you know what line of work you want and you begin to think uh, i think every driver thinks of retirement long before he does i thought about it because it didn't make any sense it was too much of an effort in other words i wasn't driving mentally relaxed like i used to in other words you didn't enjoy it i think the same thing is true of say Fanjo was here to drive yes um, he'd already made up his mind to retire in a couple more races in europe
1: We haven't told the coast-to-coast more, I think I will now if I may interrupt you a moment, that Juan Manuel Fangio, the road racing champion of the world, was here, decided not to try to qualify his car and went home. And you say the reason is because he wasn't relaxed on this racetrack? That's right.
7: And uh, I can see why, because it's entirely different. And he had to unlearn most of the things he'd been doing automatically for 25 years.
1: I have another question to ask you about your own physical condition. We started the interview by saying how well you looked. I recall, you probably don't know that I recall this, but you used to do um, 10 chin-ups with one hand, remember? yeah do you still uh, do that
7: yes i can still do that or probably 100 push-ups but <laughs> i mean uh, i don't have to prove anything anymore so i just i do it relaxed. but uh i think uh you enjoy living if you're still in good physical condition even if you're not driving i mean, one of the things that we're all given is a free gift in life is a good body and if we keep it that way we're, we feel good but i think everybody should do some sort of physical exercise, I keep in shape, but... uh... I have
1: one more question in about 15, 20 seconds for you to answer me, All all right? Jimmy Bryan said the other day to us here in the radio group that he thinks that very soon speeds will reach 160 miles an hour or better at this racetrack on qualification. Do you agree?
7: Uh, I don't quite agree with him 160, but I do agree that if they paved that front stretch, you'd automatically have 150 miles an hour today. You think there's no limit to the speed they can attain here? Uh, That's right. I think the the track uh, is in much better shape than it ever used to be. The turns are smooth and they have a safety apron. But uh, there's always room for progress. Maury Rose, thank you very much. Good for you to visit us. That was Maury
1: Rose, three-time winner of the 500 in 1941, 1947, and 1948. Now, fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing.
0: Maury was correct. It did take a couple of years. 1965 before that 160-mile-an-hour barrier was eclipsed in qualifying. And that happened again. 1965, it was... Uh, the pole speed of 161.233 by A.J. Foyt. One other note about Maury Rose talking about physical conditioning. It paid off for him. He lived until 1981, passed away at the age of 74. He also believed in helping out those that had disability in terms of their own physical attributes. One of his proudest moments, an invention of a device that made it possible for amputees to drive an automobile. Howdy Wilcox, by the way, would sue the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for $50,000 claiming that they falsely listed his illness as epilepsy as opposed to diabetes. He would eventually settle that for $3,000. More on some of the winners of that era when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. And we are most grateful for their support of this program. Jake Cray along with Mike Thompson here on Beyond the Bricks on a Thursday. Mike, when you look at any driver, if you were to look at their Indianapolis 500 record and say that in their first four races... They finished first or second four times, including a win. You would think that they would automatically become a legendary name. And despite coming from a fascinating sports background in general, Bill Holland, while obviously a winner, is not one that we routinely talk about in terms of 500 winners and their backstory, but I guess that changes tonight because we're going to hear from him here in just a minute.
4: But I think we should talk about him more. I mean, he he led 143 laps as a rookie and he should have won that year. There was the controversial, everybody I think knows about the controversial easy sign that uh, ended up where Holland ended up not winning the race. And then he finished second again the next year, won in 1949, finished second in 50. So as you said, second, second, first and second. And something people may not know about Bill Holland. Bill Holland wasn't a rookie and he was 39 years old when he was a rookie. Uh, so it wasn't like he, you know, he was some young, you know, like 23, 24 year old rookie. He, he didn't start his Indianapolis 500 career till 1947 when he was 39 years old. So uh, not, not exactly the, I mean, he was an overnight success in that he had success right out of the box, but, but it took him until 39 years old to become a rookie at the Indianapolis 500. So, uh, you know,
2: just a, a great, great driver that we should talk more about. And this is him with Sid Collins in 1954. Direct from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, this is Sid Collins with another interview for you of one of our famous drivers, perhaps one who has amassed as great a record, if not the greatest of any driver today at the Speedway track, Bill Holland, who won the race in 1949. Hi, Bill. Hi, Sid. I'd like to run through your record very rapidly and bring our fans up to date once more. They probably don't need too much assistance on checking Bill Holland's record because back in 1947, your first race, you came in second, right? That's right. And that was a controversial type of race, wasn't it, Bill?
3: Yes, there was a little discussion on that uh, around the country.
2: Because Moria Rose came in first and there was a bit of a question as to who signaled easy to whom and you took second spot. In 1948, you came back to avenge that second spot and come in first and again came in second.
3: That's right. I was jumping out of gear that year, almost the whole race, so I was lucky to get second out of it. You jumped very well. Then in
2: 1949, you won this ring that I see you proudly displaying on your left hand, as well as many, many other honors, coming in first and winning the Speedway 500. In 1950, that was your toughest break, wasn't it?
3: Well, it was pretty tough. I wouldn't say the toughest, but uh, I think I could have won the race if it hadn't rained or if it had rained a little sooner when I was leading the race. Bill, you
2: were leading the race until just a few moments before the rains came and then went in the pit for tire change, right? Yes, that's right. And then Johnny Parsons scooted on ahead, and at that time the flag came down, the race was called, a short race, and you came in second again. That's correct. And with those uh, second spots and that win in 1949, Bill, I'm sure that you've amassed a great amount of money as well as a great record at the track. Are you not the greatest money winner
3: since the war? Well, that's uh, what the record says, I believe. Not the pocketbook? Uh, no. Uh, every time I think of that, I wonder what I spent it all on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then you have the greatest record, I believe, with your three seconds and your first, and last year coming in 15th of any other driver since the War II. I believe that's right. Well, last year, something very startling happened at the Speedway Bill, and I wonder if you can best tell our listeners about it. That's when you jumped into a car that hadn't done better than 130 at time trial day, and you jacked it up to 137.8 miles per hour to qualify for the second fastest speed. How'd you do that, Bill?
3: Well, I don't know. Uh, I think it's just mostly experience. Uh, uh, They were a new type of car uh, that year and most of the fellas didn't know how to drive them and probably still don't, but uh, they're definitely different from the conventional race car and I just figured out uh, what it should do and uh, tried it and it it worked that way and so I got around. It worked very well. In fact, uh, you were bumped prior to that. You lost
2: the car you first qualified because of a faster speed made after yours and then came back in this field in the 28th spot. How did it feel for a man who's won the race to start 28th?
3: Well, it feels a lot better starting up front. Uh, You don't have all the traffic to worry about and uh, what someone else may do. It's nice riding out front in, in the clear, but Last year, uh, it was pretty tough driving up through the traffic, especially early in the race. Everyone's still charging hard, and uh, when you pass anyone, why they're racing with you as hard as they can to keep you from passing. Later in the race, it settles down a little bit, and it's not quite so hard to get by, but I found it quite difficult last year working up through the traffic. Bill, we've had your hometown
2: listed as Reading, Pennsylvania, Bridgeport, Connecticut, now Indianapolis, Indiana, and
3: uh, we understand you're taking on a new venture. You're going into business, right? That's right. I'm uh, bringing out a new polish uh, for automobiles. It'll be known as Bill Holland's Polish. And its uh, I've been experimenting with it for a couple of years. And it's by far the greatest thing I've seen yet, uh, polishing paint, uh, automobiles, refrigerators, or anything like that. We'll take
2: that personal unbiased testimonial and get a can. It'll be distributed nationally, I hope. Yes, it will. We'll watch for it. Uh, very briefly now, Bill, in the few seconds we have left, what about this new car you plan to drive this May 31st?
3: Well, it'll be uh, known as one of the Bardall cars, and uh, uh, Ed Walsh from St. Louis owns it, Harry Stevens is a mechanic, and it'll be one of the new 500D, I believe it is, series, uh, the so-called Roadster type, uh, with the offset engine. The engines are over six or eight inches to the left of the car, which uh, seems to give better traction at the speedway. And uh, it'll be the latest thing and a little different from last year's. It's narrower, I understand, and uh, somewhat lower. Well, Bill Holland will be watching for you
2: on May 31st, and best of luck to you. Thank you very much, Sid. And fans, don't forget the time trials May 15th, 16th, 22nd, and 23rd at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway.
0: Bill Holland would pass away at the age of, uh, excuse me, in 1984, I should say, at the age of seventy-six, but um, still a fascinating life, and also other business ventures that he took part in along with his wife after his racing career. But one of the more fascinating figures, Mike, that as you talked, as you mentioned, we probably should talk
4: more about. Absolutely. And, and what Sid sort of mentioned was the fact that he raced in 47, 48, 49 and 50, but then he wasn't in the race again until 1953. That's because he was suspended for two years and he was suspended because he, he raced in a three lap charity race in Florida and he was actually suspended for two full seasons for that. And, and the race was a, a match race against a future 500 driver, Bobby John's. So that was a pretty harsh suspension for for a three-lap charity race. When
0: we come back, one of the legendary voices that doesn't belong to Sid Collins talking to a guy whose name is on the Borg Warner, not necessarily spelled the way he would spell it out. We'll explain on Beyond the Bricks.
3: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200mg at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
0: Jay Query, Mike Thompson, Eddie Garrison sitting in studio with us. Beyond the Bricks here on a Thursday night, Johnny Parsons, by the way, in 1949, in his very first Indianapolis 500, started 12th, finished 2nd, ran all 200 laps. Only twice in his career did he finish on what we call the podium. He had a 4th place finish in 1956, but the other of those two would be in 1950 because Johnny Parsons in a rain-shortened race. After 138 laps, won the 1950 Indianapolis 500. A year later, in a promotional junket, as we call it in the biz, Tom Carnegie interviewed him for radio stations around the country to play to drum up interest in the world's greatest race.
6: A welcome to Speed Fans from Indianapolis, Indiana. The home of the famed 500-mile race. The 35th running of the International Speed Classic will be May the 30th. This is Tom Carnegie introducing the winning driver and mechanic of last year's race. Presenting first, the fellow with the heavy foot and courageous heart, here he is, Johnny Parsons. Hello, Tom. It's awful nice being back in Indianapolis. And now the fellow who mechanicked the winning car last year, Harry Stevens. Hello, Tom. It's nice being back again. Johnny Parsons, you're up first. And the first question is, you've got a different car this year, haven't you? Yes, it's uh, it's the car that Fred Agabasian drove last year. It's uh, the wind's Friction Proofing Special. Now, there were two cars in that stable, right, last year? Yes, that's right. And uh, Harry Stevens Mechanic, both of them? Yes, indeed. And the car which you drove to victory in last year's race has been sold? Yes, to a fellow in Detroit. Uh-huh. So you're all set to go in the uh, twin the last year's winning car. Now, uh, you qualified at a speed last year around what? Uh, Slightly over 132 miles an hour. And I think we'll all have to agree that's really moving. Do you expect to boost that speed any at all this year? Yes, I would like to run uh, as fast if possible uh, to 140 miles an hour. And uh, I uh, lay that to uh, the new tire that's been developed by Firestone. Also the machine has been lightened and uh, a new engine installed. Now those are some of the points we'd like to talk to Harry Stevens about. And, of course, do you think the driver himself is going to be better this year, with more experience under his belt? I think so, yeah. (laughs) A very modest assertion, and I know it's certainly true. A great um, combination of men and machines last year drove into Victory Lane, and Harry Stevens was one of the happiest fellows around. So, Harry, if you will, please tell us what you've been doing this winter to work on that uh, new car.
8: Well, we took the car, as you know, last year when we brought it back here and Freddie drove it. It was a complete new automobile. We're trying a new type of an engine and it uh, worked out quite well, but uh, we encountered a bit of trouble on about the 160th mile and we went out with a broken supercharger gear. So since then, we have taken the, the car and it has been completely rebuilt from one end to the other. A lot of changes made. We've installed a different type motor in it lightened the car up, and uh, made some changes in the fuel tank's fuel system, and I think have got a much better automobile than we had last year. So you're expecting greater things from Yes, I really feel that we will be able to do considerable better, because as we know, the fastest lap that the car turned last year was 134.288, although the qualifying time wasn't that high. That was only the best lap that the car turned, and I believe by the improvements that have been made in the automobile and the increased speed which we can get with the new tire which has been developed, that it should be well up there, and I know John has had considerable more experience, and which is certainly going to help.
6: Yes, sir, Mr. Stevens. Now, you were the first one to bring a car into gasoline alley this year. Well, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an honor of and in itself. And do you mean that from the not only last uh, November when you started working on the car, but from now until that first qualification day, you're going to be working on it practically night and day?
8: Well, uh, the car is in, uh, is just about ready to go, but there's always little details that you just seem to want to go back and go over and over and over, and we'll continue to do that until the day of the race, probably. Johnny Parsons, uh, one
6: more question to you. What's your greatest thrill, the track, time trials, and the race itself? Well, uh... They're I, both think, great thrills, I think I time know. trials is very exciting, but that, uh, that first lap by the, uh, the starter flag is quite thrilling. And that's the lap you want to get out in front on, isn't it? That's it, yes. <laughs> and stay in front the rest of the way. The winner of last year, Johnny Parsons, and the mechanic on the winning tire, Harry Stevens, speaking to you from Indianapolis, Indiana, the home of the famed 500-mile race.
0: Johnny Parsons would also pass away in 1984 at the age of 66. His name immortalized on the Borg Warner Trophy, but despite the fact that his name was spelled J O H N N I E, it is J O H N N Y on the trophy. The reality is they might have been thinking of his son, Johnny Parsons, who, of course, spells it with a Y and not the I E. It has not been corrected. And Johnny Parsons actually, Mike, perfect segue into tomorrow's show.
4: Yeah, tomorrow night we're going to talk about uh, drivers from Indiana, which will be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. So we're going to talk about uh, drivers who are from Indiana. But I'd like you to also work heavy foot and courageous heart into this year's broadcast, if possible. (laughs) Alexander Rossi, the man with the heavy foot and courageous heart.
0: (laughs) I will try to do that right when I say, here they come, and there they go, (laughs) with a heavy foot and the courageous hearts. Uh, We'll do it again tomorrow night. Thanks for listening, everybody.